This is the Dare to Dream Physician Travel Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Waylee Gray. Hey, you know how many physicians today are feeling overwhelmed and trapped living that busy and unfulfilling life? Yet more than ever, we as physicians are keenly aware that life is precious and tomorrow is not guaranteed to anyone. My mission is to help physicians start living their best life now by discovering and achieving their wildest travel dreams. So come, join us on this journey. Welcome back to another episode of the Dare to Dream Physician podcast. I am so excited to have our conversation today. My guest is Dr. Kim Fisher. She's a board-certified physician anesthesiologist and the founder of Lucid, an advanced care planning coaching service. She has practiced medicine for over 10 years and supported countless families through difficult conversations and decisions. These experiences have proven to Dr. Fisher the tremendous value of engaging in end-of-life conversations in times of health. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with Dr. Fisher because I was just sharing with her that recently my husband and I went through estate planning with an attorney and we got handed these forms to to fill out, answer, what are you gonna, what what are you gonna decide for this? this bullet point, this bullet point. And I felt horribly unequipped to answer them and and also have a conversation with my husband about it. So I'm super excited for this conversation and please help us welcome Dr. Fisher to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk with you. So tell us a little bit more about how um, you got interested in advanced care planning as an anesthesiologist. Sure. Well, one thing I think it ties into the story you just started with. I had a very good family friend that was also engaging in the estate planning process. And she was also handed these forms and they had spent about two minutes of the 60 minute time allotted for that process to engage in advanced care planning. And she had these documents and she was looking at them and felt overwhelmed and completely confused by the language. And so she called me and asked if I would help explain to her what her options were. And I saw this as this really great opportunity to sit down with her and also to bring her healthcare proxy, who was her son, into the conversation. Because what I know is that these documents are meant to document a conversation. They are really the second step. The first step is the conversation. The second step is the filling out of the documents. And so we sat outside on this beautiful afternoon and we had a conversation that really was there to explore her values, right? So I asked her about what matters most in her life, what brings her joy, what gives her a sense of purpose and connection, what does her best day look like, what is she not willing to tolerate? And we answered all of those questions and her son was able to sit there and hear it and also ask her some follow-up questions to gain clarity. And then we returned to the documents and filled them out. And what we really had created for her son, who would be her advocate, was a filter for him to ask physicians in the future, you know, if mom said to her, the most important thing is to to be with her family. Is this treatment going to allow her to be with her family? Because then we want it. 
But if this treatment isn't going to allow for that, then it's not something she wants. So then that document, that conversation has become the filter through which he'll be able to decide which treatments are best for her in the future. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. I'm already picturing this similarities between advanced care planning to, to life planning, because when, you know, we have first chatted, I thought, well, advanced care planning, like, how does that really, I mean, it sounds like it's the other side of life planning. <laughs> life planning is when you're healthy and advanced care planning is when your health is gone. I see how this ties in very nicely from, from that story. So tell me a little bit more about how when you had this family member reach out to you for help, how did you know to, to have that type of conversation with them? Because I I have to say, I I have not done an advanced care directive, you know, through, through my doctor, but it's through the estate planning attorney, which very similar experience. We got handed these forms and there wasn't a lot of counseling on it, which And I don't know if that was because they knew I was a physician. And then, so they're like, well, you probably don't need counseling because you're a physician. My husband is not a physician. And I was just telling you how I don't think I am the best person to do the counseling because of course I'm biased. And I was just saying to you that as physicians, we probably have a certain bias in that we see patients who end up choosing or their family choosing a lot of these invasive procedures um, that don't go well, that have complications. And then I was just telling you my dad's journey with cancer, if I were from the outside looking in, I would think, well, why did he get all these procedures? But as a family member, I could see that all these countless surgeries that he had and rounds of chemo and radiation really has helped him in that he was able to, uh, still is to some extent, but certainly like a couple of years ago was able to do some amazing things in his life, even though he was battling this really aggressive cancer. He and my mom went to Antarctica right in between cancer treatments, which I would say is a pretty amazing life planning type of item. And and I, I think my bias as a, a physician, especially having worked in ICUs and, you know, inpatient medicine, you don't necessarily see those stories either. I'm just amazed that you were able to, you had that instinct to have that kind of conversation with your family member. I, I don't know if I would know how to counsel my own family members or myself on how to go through an advanced directive planning. Yeah. And there's so much to unpack there. My my first thought is, is the connection between the advanced care planning process and life planning. You know, I know in life planning within those questions, you're asking what is important to you. And honestly, I'm asking that same question. And also people who are in a state of health, right? Both you and I are younger, but we don't know what happens tomorrow. And so in the same way that you're engaging in that estate planning process, Um, Part of it is thinking about how you want to live both now and at the end of your life. And that's what I do within advanced care planning. I'm asking people what is important to you, what matters most to you. And to tie it back to your dad, it sounds like you guys, whether you realize it or not, are making treatment decisions based on what matters to him. It sounds like to him going to Antarctica and traveling is something that mattered. And so these treatments were getting him there. And then they're worthwhile treatments. And that's how you always get to decide, okay, does this treatment make sense for my loved one? And going back to answer the question of how did I how did I kind of come up with this process or, or learn or recognize that I thought we could do something a little bit different than how it's done 
is that I've seen these documents handed to patients and I've seen them handed to them patients in the ICU settings and before surgeries. And it's like a menu. They're given a menu of options. Do you want a feeding tube? Do you want a breathing tube? Do you want uh, chest compressions? And it is like it's a menu written in a language that they have no idea what they're ordering. It's so very not concrete and people don't know what it means, what the consequences mean to having a breathing tube, having a feeding tube. How does life look like? What kind of suffering or, or, or not suffering is included within those choices? And so to me, I think that when you're asking people to make decisions about things they cannot possibly understand, right? They're like sitting in a French restaurant. They don't speak French and they're ordering off the menu, hoping that something they like comes it's really a problem. What I realized through different reading and experiences was that when you ask people, well, what is your best day? They can answer that no problem. And I remember reading Atul Gawande's book and he tells the story of actually a palliative care physician who was the healthcare proxy for her father who was about to have a big procedure. And she went and she asked him, all right, dad, you know, I'm going to have to maybe make some decisions for you. What matters to you? And he said to her, as long as I can watch football and eat ice cream, life is worth living. And so that's not, do you want a breathing tube, a feeding tube, dialysis? That's, I want to watch football and eat ice cream. And so every decision was, okay, if we do this procedure, this intervention, will he be able to eat ice cream and watch football? And if the answer is, we think so, then that's the right treatment choice. And the answer is, if not, then that's probably not the right treatment. And let's come up with a different treatment or comfort measure. And so it's really saying, instead of being given a menu of options of things we don't understand, let's have a conversation that's actually quite loving and meaningful and saying what matters most to me, sharing that with our loved ones. And I think the way it ties back into that life planning process is because when we take a moment to sit and acknowledge what matters most to us, I think it reminds us how to live intentionally right now. And it gives us a moment to say, okay, this is what matters. Am I prioritizing that still? Ah, that's, that, that's great. Right. And then that does tie a lot into the, the three questions, which I've gone over in the beginning podcast episodes. Let's say you didn't have to worry about money. What would your life be like? Or you only have five years left to live. What, how would you change your life? Or um, the last one would be if you only had 24 hours left to live and you're reflecting on your life, what did you miss? Who did you not get to be? Those type of reflections also will help guide the advanced planning answers. I, I can't tell you how much I, I love what you've shared so far. I mean, in the first five minutes of, of you explaining how you approach advanced care planning has, has brought it all together and, and made everything made sense to me. And maybe that's why in the past I have, I haven't been too crazy about, I mean, let's just be honest here. Nobody likes filling out those forms, right? If you, if you gave someone this form and and I think because our, our audience here are physicians, I think most of us have sort of a bias because we've seen like the worst of the worst, right? Like people who have been on these feeding tubes forever or people who are on breathing tubes forever and you can't get them out and there's all this pain in the family. And so we've seen sort of the worst side of that. And then I would say probably for the lay person, 
Um, it's a different kind of fear. It's, it's, it's that fear of the unknown because they don't know what it's like to have a feeding tube. They don't know what that looks like, but there's this fear of, well, are people going to give up on me if I answer a certain way? If I say, oh no, I don't want a feeding tube. No, I don't want um, a breathing tube. Does that mean they're just going to pull the plug and, you know, let me go. And, um, and it's, it's all based out of fear. My fears as a clinician, I've having seen the worst of cases, like I don't want to have that be, you know, my situation. And then the fear of the layperson who is thinking, oh, if I answer incorrectly, that means I'm not going to get the best care for me. And, and it's neither of those, right? I mean, it, it, like we, we can't answer these questions based on fear, but I think when you stick this form in front of people and, you know, ask them these questions, that's sort of the inevitable reaction because it's really unpleasant thinking about how to answer those questions. I think you're correct. Those forms are unpleasant and they bring up in some ways, very unpleasant conversations. And that's why people aren't having them. And so they fill out the form and they put it in the safe. And there's a code that is maybe in an email that Lord knows how we're going to find that when we really need it. And that's also why I do this work. I want to change the conversation because I actually think people want to talk about this. I had a client that I spoke with recently and we were deciding on how we were going to work together. And she said to me, I am ready. I want to plan. I'm a planner. I just was a little afraid to have these conversations. And when I presented to her, well, we're going to actually have this really loving conversation where you tell me what your best day is. And in addition, I think it's really important for us to plan our own celebration of how we want to be celebrated after we die, both for ourselves and to to help our loved ones. So we do that as well. And so it takes it from, you're right, this very unpleasant document that can be lost (laughs) and is sometimes very meaningless, very hard to make decisions based off of those. And I take it and say, well, let's, let's break it down to just very simple things of, How do we like to live? What are we willing to tolerate? And how do we want to be celebrated? And when we do that, I find that it's actually a really loving conversation. That fear that people show up with really melts away quite quickly. I've had these beautiful interactions. I had a family recently where we were talking about the celebration that was going to happen after this woman died, hopefully many years from now. And she said, oh, there's certain music that I want played at my funeral. And her children interrupted and said, we know it. We know exactly what you want. We got the rendition. We're good. We got it. And there was a pause. And the mom said, actually, it's not that. I want something different. And so here was this great opportunity that they were able to say, oh, you know, mom was able to feel really comforted and knowing that she's going to get to have what she wants at that celebration, which she will not be at, and also that her children know. And her children now know, okay, that's exactly what she wants. We know what to do. We don't even have to think. We get to be able to grieve and already have the answers to what we're going to want to do so that we celebrate her. So I think it's really taking it from this fearful, kind of horrible, nobody wants to talk about experience and making it just a part of life and a part of life that actually doesn't have to be terrible to discuss. And I also find once we start having these conversations, they come up more and more because what we want changes as we get older as well. Yeah. Wow. That's such a good point that you made. You know, death is a part of life. And um, and I don't know if it's cultural or what, but I would say that in American culture, we're really 
really death averse. Perhaps it's more in the forefront of other cultures, but in our youth loving culture here, it's, it's not a, a topic of conversation. It's not. And I think also in medicine, you know, your audience is physicians. In medicine, we're death adverse. We, I just participated in facilitating some small groups for one of the medical schools near me. And they talk about death for one week a year. One week. Oh, that's more than what I got. What is a medical school? <laughs> Fair point. Myself as well. It's more than I got too, but it just really had me thinking, my goodness, you know, death is an option. It's always an option when we're thinking about treatments and, and a comfortable death. And I think that we're a, somehow it has been within the medical culture. If we offer death as an option, it means failure. And I really hope that we can pause and think, no, death is something that will happen to all of us. It's the one thing we know. And if we can try to allow people when possible to have the kind of dying and death experience that they would prefer, why wouldn't we try that? And, and for some people, that includes all the lines and all the tubes. And that is okay for them if they have expressed that. And for other people, it might look different. Um, but we're not going to abandon anyone within whichever treatment they choose. And it's okay to die. And I think that's the part within physicians that was never imparted on us, that death is an option. It's not a failure. And it can be uh, an okay option sometimes. Mm. Well, and and the other part that I always think about is, you know, as physicians, we're not gods. So eventually, last time I checked, we all die. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, I mean, not only is it an option, it, it's sometimes it's just inevitable, right? No matter what we do. And I think we've all seen in, as healthcare workers, we've all seen the cases where, you know, it, it unfortunately it's inevitable and people are suffering because, that conversation did not happen, or, or perhaps the um, people in charge of um, that patient's healthcare, both the family and the the physicians, aren't willing to accept that death is is happening, no matter what what they're trying to do, and 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 you see the the patient they're suffering as a, a result of it. Yeah, and I do think you brought something up before. Also, you know, culturally, I do think there are differences in terms of how we approach death. And so it's always really important to acknowledge that in the culture of the patient or the culture of your loved one. And also, we don't want people to suffer. And I imagine, you know, when you ask most people where or how they want to die, it's typically not in an ICU setting with many lines and tubes and, and being alone, right? And so I think always remembering that. And, and I do think it is our role as physicians that I just heard it the other day, you know, we want everything done. We're, we're bringing a patient down to the operating room for another procedure that is likely not going to change the outcome here, but may lead to suffering because the family wants everything done. And I would say, I think that is on us sometimes to go back and continue having those conversations and saying, you know, what about the suffering? And it's hard and it doesn't always change the outcome, but I do think that part of it is, is, is our role as physicians to, to really help the public understand what does everything actually mean? Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, it's so good. You've given us an idea of how you start the conversation and start the process for advanced care planning through these coaching services. Um, are there anything that, because you mentioned like, okay, you know, what music do we play at the funeral? <laughs> I mean, is that part of the package? <laughs> or I mean, I, I think that's the other part is, I don't know if we have to get into funeral planning, but I would say for, you know, for families, when uh, death happens, even if it's expected, that, that can be quite a, a stress making all those decisions that the funeral home then throws at them. Yes, completely. It is 100% a part of that because, you know, I think we want to, I like to explore uh, how people want to be celebrated, right? And for some people, it is a funeral. For some people, it looks quite different. Um, I'll share, you know, my husband and I talk about this now all the time. And for him and for myself as well, at this stage in life, we're calling it a party, right? I want to party in the woods with whatever people want to wear, hopefully some colors, some delicious food, and it's a celebration. And my husband knows that. So that if something were to happen and he had to make these decisions, they've kind of already been made. And so that tremendous grief that will be there is not added upon, you're not adding onto it all the stress of having to make decisions and would she want this, would she want that? We've already talked about it. So yes, I do talk about that. And I think also something that's really interesting right now within the funeral and death and dying space is that it used to be this idea that you'd walk into a funeral home and it's, do you want a casket in the ground or do you want to be cremated? And there are actually so many more options. Um, My favorite right now is terramation, right? So you're turned back into soil and your family has you as their soil, or it can be sent back to help reforest a, a forest somewhere. But there are all these really interesting options that I also like to present so that people don't feel like they have to choose just one or the other. And I think talking about it again in a time of health, we're not stressed. We have space for that conversation. It's something we can continue to revisit so that when it happens, our loved ones who are going to have to make those decisions are prepared with all the information to honor our own wishes. Mm, I love that. Okay. So it sounds like you and your husband have had positive advanced care planning type of conversations. Can you share with me what, how those conversations have changed how you live life now? I, a few things. I, I used to be afraid of death right? I really was. And sometimes that fear creeps in and I had to start asking myself what I was afraid of. And I think it was dying without having lived my purpose, right? And so now that I talk about death and acknowledge that it may be around the corner, I really hope it's not. I have a lot more plans, but it also has me living a lot more intentionally right now with that recognition that it can happen. The other thing is that I also have really recognized that um, I feel as though I will be safe because my wishes are known and that there is someone who will be able to speak for me in the way that I would speak for myself. And so that's actually given me a lot of peace to know that he knows how to speak for me because I've given him those words. So I'm, I'm living a little more intentionally right now. And also feel comforted in knowing that he knows how to take care of me if that was to happen. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. 
Thank you so much for、um, coming on and and sharing this amazing resource that you've built. Do you want to share with the audience how they can find you and what sort of resources、um, you can offer them if they're listening to this conversation, like I am, and thinking, "Wow, I really could benefit from this because I was just handed this form to fill out and I didn't really know how to answer, or I knew what how to answer, but I didn't think it was really good enough the way that the process went." Yeah, for sure. So I have a conversation guide on my website that I think is a really great primer that can help you have these conversations, and you don't have to think about the questions; they're right there for you. And so that is on my website at lucidadvocate.com. And if you're feeling like you need a little bit more, and you might want a facilitator, someone to help you have this conversation, someone to help guide the conversation, I do work with clients as well, one-on-one, and would be certainly happy to talk to anyone about having me help them go through this conversation. I do videotape the conversations with my clients, and I also provide them with a document that has those really salient points. So that that conversation is right there on the document, and someone can really remember what was said. You can reach out to me through my website, and I would be happy to be in touch. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And do you do any? You said that you were doing a workshop with medical students. Do you do any teaching or workshops like that? If there were groups like medical groups or organizations that were interested in in this conversation. Yes, thank you for asking. I do do webinars and presentations. I do them both virtually and in person. And so, if you have an organization that you feel like your community, your audience could really benefit from having some help in starting these conversations, I definitely give workshops on that as well, and would love to come in and speak to your community. I am passionate about us saying what really matters and really starting the conversation from there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kim, again for coming on. Before we go, I just want to have you share any words of wisdom for our audience in helping them dare to dream and live their intentional life. Yeah, I was thinking about this before. I had a little bit of an arrival fallacy when I finished residency and became an attending, and when I was able to get some coaching and recognize there could be life beyond. And really looking around and seeing how could I be creative outside of the operating room, or how could I be creative outside of my W two job, we'll call it. I've actually the burnout has gone down tremendously because I'm finally starting to use my skills in a way that is in line with my own passions. And so, really recognizing that being a physician is an incredible honor, and there's room for something else as well if you want it. You can be both. Ah, that's beautiful and so true. I'll put all your、uh, resources in the show notes, and I hope you guys will reach out to Dr. Fisher because I, I think what she offers is incredibly unique and it's just so needed. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend and go on your favorite podcast app to give us a five star rating and a review. It really helps us to get the word out there. Also, I am really excited to announce I've started a online Facebook community for physicians. Go and search for Dare to Dream Physician Travel. That's the name of the Facebook group. If you have trouble finding us, the link is also in the show notes. I hope to see you on the inside.